style. For March, we'll be considering five competitions of historic proportions. Each week, we'll look at a couple or more of our favorite monarchs, and you will vote on the winner. You can vote anytime during the month. Please, please follow me on social media so you can participate and vote. I'm at at Shakeup History on Instagram and Twitter, and Carol Ann Lloyd Shakeup History on Facebook. Our first competition is about the very foundation of the monarchy. Which monarch do you think contributed more to the essence of kingship in early Britain, King Arthur or Richard the Lionheart? Those monarchs take the field on Wednesday, March 3rd, and you choose the winner. Next, a rosy battle, or should I say, a rosy war. We've looked at the Wars of the Roses before, but this time we're pitting king against king. You make the choice. Who deserved to win the Wars of the Roses? Henry VI or Edward IV? They both had at least one victory over the other, but now it's time for a final round. Your vote chooses the big rosy winner. Then it's on to the Tudors. The big guy himself asked this question in 1537 in the Whitehall mural. Did Henry VII or Henry VIII contribute more to the Tudor dynasty and to England? Henry VIII answered that question, choosing himself, but I'm not willing to take his word for it. So what do you think? Which of the first two tutors made the most difference? Then, as it's Women's History Month, as well as March Madness Month and Monarch Madness Month, our final two contests will be between the queens. First off, a classic battle between cousins. Who was the more successful queen, Elizabeth I of England or Mary, Queen of Scots? Use whatever criteria you like and choose your winner. And finally, we can't end a royal rumble without a nod to the women whose lives redefined Henry VIII over and over and over and three more times. The six wives of Henry VIII changed England, changed Henry, and changed history. So, now you decide which wife had the most impact. Who changed Henry or England or history the most significantly? So... Are you ready to rumble? It seems so fitting that the 50th episode of the podcast is an opportunity to celebrate the results of our first Monarch Madness. We had a terrific march full of royal rumbles. Thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to the episodes and to vote I'm so excited about the level of participation. I loved seeing you weigh in on these fascinating people. And I really enjoyed those who shared their reasons and criteria as well as their votes. So, drum roll, please. Here are the final five, the winners of our first ever Monarch Madness. One, King Arthur. Each evening from December to December, before you drift to sleep upon your cot, think back on all the tales that you remember of Camelot. That lovely lyric from Lerner and Lowe's stage musical Camelot, and the film adaptation as well, seems to be a great way to think about how King Arthur has managed to have such a hold on our imagination. The song goes on. Ask every person if he's heard the story 
and tell it strong and clear, if he has not, that once there was a fleeting wisp of glory called Camelot. The moment for this final version of the song is at the end of the production, where everything has fallen apart. King Arthur finds and knights a young man, sending him safely home where he can share the legend and keep it alive. And that certainly happened in Monarch Madness. King Arthur was your choice by a landslide. In many ways, this is a fitting way to think of King Arthur. We don't know if he was a real person or not. There are stories that start in the 5th or 6th century of a great warrior. Later, stories turn him into a military leader and eventually a king. The stories continue to grow, especially through the works of Geoffrey of Monmouth, who lived in the 12th century. Monmouth's famous History of the Kings of Britain included several stories of King Arthur and his birth at Tintagel. Monmouth's text was popular all over Europe. He claimed to have translated his work from an old book he received from the Archdeacon of Oxford. His account was one of the first substantial discussions about King Arthur's life and family and reign. For centuries, it was a major source of information about the legendary king. Camelot enters the legend through the work of French poet Chrétien de Troyes. In the Vulgate cycle, Camelot emerges as the central location of Arthur's kingdom. The story of Camelot includes a large castle that holds feasts and tournaments and is the location of the round table. According to the story, the table was a gift from Guinevere's father to celebrate her marriage to King Arthur. Merlin instructed the knights knights to pursue joy and friendship and become as dear to each other as brothers. But despite the focus on chivalry and worship, a darker story emerges in de Troyes' work, with Lancelot and Guinevere having an affair and Arthur engaging in a ruinous war. Mordred and Arthur kill each other in the final battle. But Arthur's legend is not dead. In the 15th century, Sir Thomas Mallory created his own version of the legend, compiling, rearranging, interpreting, and reimagining the folktales of the famous king and his knights. Mallory's work was published by William Caxton as Le Mort d'Arthur. This version inspired Henry Tudor to bring his wife to Winchester so their first child could be born there. The first Tudor king named his firstborn son Arthur, intending for him to carry on the Tudor-Arthur connection to a glorious future. The Tudors didn't get their wish, but the Arthurian legend lived on. In addition to remaining a central figure in literary history, the image of Camelot was chosen by Jacqueline Kennedy to symbolize the presidency and tragic death of her husband. It was, according to that connection, another fleeting wisp of glory. So Arthur and his legend live on. 2. Edward IV and Team York Team York was another big winner in Monarch Madness. It was another one-sided contest with Edward IV outstripping Henry VI by a long way. Henry VI never really had a chance. He was not a great king, and he allowed factions to fill and ultimately destroy his government. His grandfather had grabbed the throne from Richard II, leaving a bit of tarnish on the family name. His father, the extraordinary Henry V, managed to remove all the tarnish from the idea of a Lancastrian reign, but he also died at the pinnacle of success and left shoes that were too big for anyone to fill, let alone a baby. When Henry VI grew up, things didn't get much better for him, and repeated collapses from a mystery illness didn't help. He just didn't have what it took to be the king. Edward IV definitely had what it took. His father, Richard, Duke of York, had started the ball rolling, 
But people always seemed a bit hesitant with Richard. He tended to come off as arrogant and he made a play for the crown before people were willing to follow and support him. Still, he started on the path and left a serious legacy of ambition for the crown with all three of his sons. As the oldest, Edward IV took that legacy and ran with it. Only 17 and unproven when his father died, Edward quickly established himself as a strong warrior and compelling leader. Edward was victorious in battle. His remains demonstrate that he was more than six feet tall, so he would have towered over his enemies when he engaged them in combat. He looked every inch a king, tall, strong, and handsome. He understood the value of propaganda and created an elaborate genealogical role that proved he was the rightful king. Even so, he was impulsive and young, which perhaps contributed to his decision to marry Elizabeth Woodville while his ministers were working on a foreign marriage. Edward used his wife's relatives to establish his own relationships with the nobility, distancing himself from the famous Warwick, the kingmaker. Warwick eventually changed sides and restored Henry VI to the throne. Not to be outdone, Edward raised troops in Burgundy and returned to England, becoming the only king in history to take the throne by force, lose the throne by force, and then invade his country and take the throne by force again. His second reign was generally peaceful and he had two sons and five daughters. His final years are described as utterly self-indulgent, and he was fat and unhealthy when he died in 1483 at just 42 years old. So Edward took up the Yorkist standard and brought the family to the throne twice. He could be said to have ended the York versus Lancaster battle. The next battle was really between York and York, as Edward's brother Richard took the throne from his son. And the final dispute was York versus Tudor. So Edward IV was a significant and successful king, even if he did contribute to the factions that allowed Richard III to come to the throne and eventually end the Yorkist dynasty. Speaking of which, Henry VII. Henry VIII might be one of the most famous kings of England, if not the most famous, but he did not prevail against his father in monarch madness. This would have been infuriating for him, as he seemed to be fighting against his father's memory and achievements his entire life. So perhaps deep down, even Henry VIII realized that the most significant of the first two Tudor kings was, indeed, Henry VII. After all, Henry VII created the Tudor dynasty. He did more than that. He created the Tudor story. He created the notion that the complicated, overlapping, ambition-driven, desperate battles that had devastated England in the 15th century were wars of roses. White Rose York versus Red Rose Lancaster. He created a Lancastrian legacy that landed on him, the son of the Beaufort family. He created a reign that began a day before he was victorious at Bosworth, making Richard III and his supporters traitors and defying logic and fact. And he created a symbol that tied all this together, the Tudor Rose. The Tudor Rose is one of the most powerful, successful, and lasting political symbols of all time. It's brilliant in its simplicity. Red Rose of Lancaster, White Rose of York, united in one when Henry VII married Elizabeth of York. In an age when literacy was just beginning to grow and most of the country communicated with images and pictures, it tells a story of unity and peace that anyone could and did understand. That image is found all over Britain, from buildings to pubs to the coronation regalia to the coins of the realm. It has literally been stamped on our collective consciousness. And it all started with Henry VII. His success with the Tudor story and symbol doesn't mean it was easy to take or to hold on to the throne. In fact, Henry Tudor fought hard to do both. He hadn't set foot in England for 14 years when he arrived to claim the throne. He didn't have a bunch of aristocratic family members to ease his way. 
He didn't have a kingmaker. Well, actually, I think that Margaret Beaufort was his kingmaker, but that's another story. But he was determined, strategic, intelligent, and surprisingly prepared. In addition to establishing a story about how his reign came to be, Henry VIII, the seventh, I'm sorry, Henry the seventh created a court that portrayed power and authority to England and the world, even though he ended up with a reputation of being miserly and quiet and a dark figure who liked to stay out of sight. For the early years of his reign, Henry VII's court was a place that communicated an atmosphere of royal magnificence. It promoted new intellectual pursuits and traditional religious beliefs. Chivalry flourished. Henry managed to produce two sons and two daughters that lived through childhood, something no other monarch did in the Tudor dynasty. He used his children to establish alliances with Europe. He attempted peace with the troublesome Scots through a marriage of his daughter, Margaret, to the Scottish King James IV. He scored a huge prize when Ferdinand and Isabella agreed to send their daughter to marry his heir, Arthur. Plans were in the work for Henry and Mary as well. And even after the disaster of Arthur's death, there was another son ready to step up. In his final years, especially after the death of his beloved wife, Henry VII's reputation was damaged by his own actions and by his ministers. When he died, men like Thomas More sought to gain favor in the new regime by making Henry VIII the hero who would save the nation from the abuses of his father's reign. But this was as much about More's ambition as about Henry Tudor's reality. In reality, Henry VII created a dynasty that would last 118 years and change England and Europe forever. Four, Queen Elizabeth I. I think we don't often stop to think how amazing it is that much of the 16th century was about the battle between two women for power. Both Mary, Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth I of England were center stage. After centuries of male rule, England and Scotland were ruled by women, and both women were ambitious, interested in gaining and maintaining power, and willing to fight for the throne. Eventually, only one would prevail. Scotland versus England, Stuart versus Tudor, Hart versus Head. In Monarch Madness, it was a close match. Ultimately, Elizabeth I was voted most successful queen. That doesn't mean there isn't tremendous sympathy and affection for Mary, Queen of Scots. She experienced terrible tragedies, such as the death of her father when she was just a few days old, and the death of her first and most loved husband after just two years of marriage in France. Her mother had also died by then, and having Catherine de' Medici as a mother-in-law can't have been much of a comfort. Mary also made some bad decisions about her friends and advisors. She was duped by her father-in-law, Henri of France, into signing Scotland away as part of her marriage agreement with the Dauphin. She was betrayed by her half-brother, the Earl of Moray. And then there were her second and third husbands, Henry Lord Darnley and the Earl of Bothwell. Elizabeth also experienced tragedy. She lost her mother and her status as princess before she was three years old when Anne Boleyn fell from favor. She was generally out of favor with her father until the end of his reign and experienced a series of stepmothers, seeing them die in childbirth, be pushed aside when the king wanted someone else, and beheaded as her mother had been. She was nurtured by her final stepmother, Catherine Parr, but she would have known that no marriage of Henry to Henry VIII was forever and that she could lose Catherine too at any time. Although Catherine Parr survived her marriage to Henry VIII, 
She died in childbirth the next year, so Elizabeth lost her anyway. Elizabeth was under tremendous pressure during the reigns of her half-brother and half-sister, accused of treason, subjected to intense interrogations, and imprisoned in the Tower of London. But in the face of these challenges, Elizabeth kept her counsel and moved forward. She surrounded herself with men like William Cecil, whom she appointed as her first council member and asked him to tell her what she needed to know rather than what she wanted to know. She proceeded cautiously with religious reform and resisted calls to move more forcefully against Catholics in general and Mary in particular. When Mary came to England, Elizabeth was faced with a woman who had been claiming her throne, who was the choice of many Catholics to be on the throne, living right there. Elizabeth prevailed. Ultimately, it's partly her choice of advisors that gave Elizabeth the opportunity to be more successful. William Cecil and Francis Walsingham and others worked tirelessly to secure Elizabeth's throne. Mary had no such steady counselors. Instead, she had ambitious men using her before she came to England and various zealous Catholics, such as Rodolphe and Babington, trying to overthrow the government and make her queen. In addition, Elizabeth had cultivated a relationship with her people from the time of her accession to the throne. Most English Catholics remained loyal to her, despite the efforts of the Pope to turn them against her. Elizabeth was the final tutor and turned the son, turned the throne over to Mary's son, James. At the same time, she ensured that England would remain a Protestant nation, and she was voted the more successful queen. Number five, all six wives. Although I am committed to considering each of Henry VIII's wives as an individual and seeing her for who she really was, as we went on with this experience, I realized it's really not the point to look at which wife changed Henry most. They all changed Henry in various and important ways, as you shared. Overall, I'd say he wasn't worthy of those women, and they all deserve better. And they all changed Henry and his reign, changed Tudor England, and changed history. So let's look at a few ways they did. The wives showed Henry the value and power of women. Henry grew up in his mother's care for the first 10 years of his life, before he became the heir when Arthur died. He seems to have really loved his mother and valued her. At various times, he loved and valued his wives, but he kept trying to force them into a particular framework made up of his expectations. They should look a certain way, speak a certain way, behave a certain way, but they didn't. These women refused to remake themselves to Henry's specifications. The wives taught Henry about courage. Henry wanted everything his way. Many of his wives stood up to him. They said, no, no, I won't just step aside. No, I won't be your mistress. No, I won't be quiet. They lived in a world. They lived in a court. And they lived with a man who demanded women behave in a particular way. Henry put his wives through terrible challenges, even sending two to their deaths. But they met those challenges and deaths with courage. The wives taught Henry that women could rule. Henry actually allowed two of his wives to act as regent while he was out of the country. In both cases, Henry was attempting to invade France and failing. Both Catherine of Aragon and Catherine Parr successfully managed the country and the men in government. Catherine of Aragon even managed to have a successful military campaign against the Scots and showed her tough side by considering sending the body of James IV to her husband to demonstrate the scope of her victory. She was persuaded to send his bloody coat instead. 
the wives provided Henry with the future leaders of the Tudor dynasty. Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, and Jane Seymour provided the king with the next three monarchs. Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard, and Catherine Parr acted as surrogate mothers to these children. Catherine Parr in in particular cultivated warm and helpful relationships with her stepchildren. She was a role model for Mary and Elizabeth in ways a woman could rule. She encouraged Henry to return his daughters to the succession. She provided a sense of security and example for Mary and Elizabeth they had not experienced for years. Over the length of his reign, together and individually, the wives of Henry VIII changed him. What's next? Thank you for spending the last few weeks playing Monarch Madness. It's been an exciting journey through some of the most famous and infamous history figures in British history. We've looked at legendary figures like King Arthur, very real figures like Henry VII, and especially appropriate during Women's History Month, we considered several women who exercised power in times when people didn't believe they could do so. Monarch Madness was an opportunity to shake up history together. Thank you for joining me. Looking ahead, we'll be exploring history and looking at the royals, rebels, and romantics for the next few months. The first season of this podcast ends in June. There will be several summer specials in July and August as we get ready for season two, which starts in September. Thank you for playing Monarch Madness. Now, before you go, please take a moment to subscribe, leave a rating, and share with a friend. And I always love hearing what you think. Thank you so much. Be sure to make your voice heard. Vote for your favorite monarch at at Shakeup History on Instagram and Twitter and Carol Ann Lloyd Shake Up History on Facebook. And let's keep shaking up history together.